Welcome back to the Kansas City Symphony's podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement. And I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. Guys, we are back after quite a long summer. It feels so good to be back with all of you for season four of the podcast. We still haven't been canceled. I thought it was going to happen after the first episode, (laughs) and then I thought it was going to happen after season one and then definitely after season two, (laughs) but they just keep renewing us. I don't know what's happening, but it really feels good to be back. I haven't seen you guys in forever. And even though we're still on Zoom, I feel like we're all in the same room together. It feels very good to be back with you guys. What have you guys been up to this summer? Yes, I've been, I've kind of gone into deep vacation mode for the first time actually in quite a while. And I've been riding my bike a lot and doing a lot of things that are not associated with music. And that's been kind of a good refresher for me, honestly. So yeah, I've been spending a few hours a day pedaling and making some good food and uh, trying to stay cool. It's been pretty hot the last month or so. What's the best thing you've made this summer? Mike is an excellent cook. He is. You know, so I, during this little vacation stretch, uh, we, my wife and I took a trip to Jamaica, which had mm. been postponed from over a year ago. And, and there was a guy there with a jerk chicken cart, like a grill on a cart. And it was so good. When I got home, I thought I'm going to try to reverse engineer this chicken. So I've done it a couple of times now. And I think, you know, for a white guy from Rhode Island, I'm starting to make <laughs> some decent jerk chicken. So I've I've enjoyed doing that. Yum. Well, we'll be over at about 7 p.m. tonight there you go. for Great. that jerk chicken. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be delish. Great. I've been cooking a lot, too. I've been grilling. Uh, I've been somehow getting worse at golf, even though I'm playing more. I'm getting worse. I don't know how that's <laughs> happening. Um, but I conducted some. I got to go to Cleveland and Breckenridge uh, and had some fun working with some excellent musicians in those cities and doing a couple festivals and camps here in town with the Youth Symphony and Heartland Chamber Music. It's been a busy summer, but it's been a very fun summer as well. Stephanie, what have you been up to? Well, let's see. We started the summer off. I became a, um, a swim team parent which I don't know if you guys know, but it involves a lot of very, very, very early mornings where my son was Mm. at the pool at 6 a.m. every day, which was fun. And he kind of hated me for making that kick off his uh, summer. Uh, No, (laughs) Uh, he did great. We figured that all out. And then um, we spent just recently, we spent two weeks in the mountains in Montana. And I actually checked, literally checked out from work, from social media, from email, from everything for two weeks. And it was, I feel like a whole new person. That's where you went. I was texting (laughs) you every day. I was posting on your Facebook wall wondering where the heck you were. I wondered where you were. No, everything just That's a good place to be. Everything just went straight to the trash. Like it was like, I don't even want to read it later. I just, it's not happening these two weeks. Nice. But nice. I hope that you guys got uh, got nice and, and rested and rejuvenated like I do, because I, I feel like we're just about to hit the ground running with this season that's coming up. And we are kicking yes. off this symphony season coming up here really quickly. Um, and we are... We're just super excited to be back. I can't tell you how excited I am to be getting back into the concert hall. Um, you know, I know we kind of dabbled with it a little bit in the spring, but we uh, we're just we're back, and it's super exciting. And our classical series is starting. Um, it's going to kick things off with a huge bang this year. Our very first classical subscription coming up in. Just a little bit. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this concert and, of course, uh, excited in general about just being able to play with a full orchestra again. And, and um, full audience. And full audience, yes, of yeah. course. Full audience is, you know, it was so strange not only having no audience for a while, but then having very, you know, small, sparse audience. That that energy was really missing, and I think... I think uh, oftentimes our audience doesn't realize just how much of a vital part of the energy of a performance uh, that they are. So that that is truly going to be the best thing. But this first weekend back, um, a lot of repertoire that uh, is 
very, very dear to me. Of course, Beethoven's uh, Overture to the Creatures of Prometheus and uh, a favorite of mine, Mahler's First Symphony. But we're also playing a world premiere by singer, songwriter and composer Gabriel Kahane. And uh, this premiere is unique in many ways, not the least of which is that the composer and soloist are father and son, or I suppose I should say son and father. <laughs> uh, and they uh, just so happen to be joining us on the podcast today. So please welcome composer Gabriel Kahane and his father, pianist and conductor Jeffrey Kahane. Welcome. It's so good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> You guys, we have been, um, you know, we've been doing this podcast, as we said, for four seasons, um, and we've had the great fortune of being able to get to know a lot of our musicians um, within the orchestra. We've had on some special guests, but now that we're getting into an actual symphony season where we're having guests come in as soloists and, and guest composers and guest conductors, I think all of us have been really excited looking at forward to this season and being able to chat with some of, you know, the people that are coming in and we get to collaborate with. So the prospect of having both of you guys on at the same time was something I was really excited about when we first started kind of planning this season. So Mike mentioned that we're doing a world premiere of this piece written by Gabriel. And Jeffrey, you're performing piano um, on that piece. The piece is titled Heirloom. And from my notes that that I've gotten from what was sent to us, so it's described as an oral family scrapbook, which I love the idea of that. So I thought first, um, Gabriel, if you could just kind of explain kind of the, the outline of the piece and what people are going to hear, and then I'd love to kind of dive in and, and see how it's all come together. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the, the way... <laughs> The best way for me to begin to talk about this piece is to talk about my father's childhood um, at the risk of embarrassing him. Dad, you can you can close your ears or you know. <laughs> so my mom and dad met at summer camp when they were 10 in the northernmost part of California. It's a place called Camp Trinity. And the thing you have to understand about my parents is that they each had older siblings. In the case of my mom, four older brothers. And in the case of my dad, an older brother and a younger sister. They were really too young to be hippies, but they so admired their older siblings that that they, you know, wanted to be hippies, despite the fact that they were like 10. So you have to picture these 10-year-olds in, you know, beaded jackets with flutes and recorders and acoustic guitars strung on their back. And they fell in love. Uh, and they wrote letters to each other, and, and they said, "Let's go around the world playing music together, and uh, let's let's get married when we're 22, and have a kid when we're 25." And most of that actually happened, um, except for the beaded jackets. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. oh, there were. I've seen I've seen the photographs. <laughs> I'm imagining like fringed boots too. Somehow. Yeah. Yes. All of that. All of that. But but um, my parents did, in fact, play in a number of folk rock bands. Dad, what were they called? Well, we only played together in one that w together. That was called Wilderness. And I had played in a couple of bands earlier, one of which was when I was, like I don't know, 10 or 11, called The American <laughs> Revelation. Um, and there was Brandywine later, right? Yes, that was an intermediate right. step, right? Right. But anyway... Um, for those who know my dad from the world of classical music, it's, I think, often a surprise when people learn that he was a songwriter and played folk music and in, in rock bands as a kid. And Carl Jung, the the great psychoanalyst um, and thinker, he has this exercise where where he says that the unrealized dream of your parent is what you as a child end up doing. Hmm. And in a somewhat literal way i i feel like i'm both the synthesis of my my parents my mother is a psychologist my dad is a musician and a lot of my work kind of lives at the intersection of thinking about human psychology and thinking about music on the one hand and then on the other my dad um like me has a, a deep interest in in classical music concert music um but also in folk music and 
Another sort of historical tidbit, which I find really touching, is that, Dad, how old were you when you wrote the letter to Ernest Fleischman? Can you tell that story? Yeah. Um, around the time that that we formed <clears throat> this band, um, which was called Wilderness, the, my she was not my wife at the time because we were 13, <laughs> but she would ultimately <laughs> become my wife. Um, many years later... Uh, <laughs> I had this this idea of writing to Ernest Fleischmann, the legendary empresario and, and longtime executive director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and suggest that he present us uh, at the Mark Taper Forum at the Music Center downtown. And, and our vision, uh, and in fact, we, we realized this vision on a couple of occasions, was to put together concerts that were, uh, that would, um, in which would intersect music from the you know centuries of of Bach up through the middle of the twentieth century with songs of our own time, including some that that I had written or I'd written with my co band members. Um, and what's interesting, I, I think, is that Gabriel, in fact, in an infinitely more sophisticated way, um, is doing exactly has been you know a essential part of his career has been doing exactly this sort of thing in in the most magisterial way we were doing it in in a very primitive way but but it's sort of um the, the touching thing about the story is not that i wrote to ernest fleischman but that he actually wrote back to me um which still amazes me i don't i don't think i have the letter anymore but i had it for a long time and and he wrote a very respectful short but respectful letter back saying you know it it wouldn't be possible for him to present us. We were all 13. <laughs> but but uh, that my ideas were were uh, wonderful. He, lo- he loved the idea of what I was proposing. Well, what I also find touching about it is that whatever degree of sophistication you and your friends had at the time, that model, which seemed in that era to be completely uh, impractical has now become almost a commonplace. And I think back, for example, to the concert, Jason, that you and I were a part of where Andrew Bird, who's a rock star, um, came out after you'd opened with, uh, was there some Ravel to start that show? Yes, we did the Pavan for a Dead Princess and a few moments of uh, La Tambo. Yeah, Yeah. so I think in a sense, Dad, you were just way ahead of your time. (laughs) And and it's, I I don't want to say that no one bats an eye at this point, but um, I, I think that we've entered into an era in part because of the streaming streaming services and the way that people listen to music now, wherein genre is often an afterthought. And we sort of return to the Duke Ellington adage of Mm -hmm. two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. Um, But returning Stephanie to your question about the genesis of the piece. So I think back to this moment with, with my dad um, playing in bands uh, as, as a kid and his sort of twin passions of folk music and concert music, and then kind of zooming forward in time to my childhood where living in Rochester, New York in the late eighties and early nineties, I would hear snippets of Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart. And then my dad would take a break, come out into the living room and, and put on Paul Simon's Graceland or Joni Mitchell blue or a Beatles album. And that was the milieu in which I grew up. And in, in many ways, the person I've become, referring back to that that Jung, Jungian idea about the unrealized dreams of our parents, it's sort of kind of obvious and on the nose, the career path that I've forged where I, I have one foot in the concert music world and, and one foot in the world of being a, a touring musician, making records as a songwriter. There's another dimension though, which has to do with my grandmother, my, my dad's mother who fled Germany at the tail end of 1938, lived in Havana for six months while awaiting uh, approval, basically a, a, a visa lottery to enter into the country. Um, and finally, in October of 1939, uh, was permitted to enter with her family via New Orleans, and then took a train to Los Angeles. And that's that's a story that I've dealt with elsewhere in my in my work. Um, but in this case, I'm thinking a lot about inheritance, different kinds of inheritance. 
the first movement deals largely with musical inheritance, the, the different musical cultures that my dad grew up with and that have been passed down to me. The second deals with my father's inheritance from my grandmother and the sort of tension between her deep love of the German culture that she left behind physically, German music, German literature, and the unspeakable tragedy of the Holocaust. And there's actually a, an incredibly touching entry in her diary that she wrote when she was 18 or 19 and had been living in Los Angeles for maybe a year and a half where she said, how, you know, how do I reconcile my love for the, the culture of my country with the fact that um, my, my, co- <laughs> my countrymen tried to murder all, all of the Jews, all, all of my people? Um, and I think she wrestled with that for, for quite a while. I don't, I don't know that we ever spoke about it. I don't know if you ever talked about that with her dad. Um, but just briefly to finish kind of the sketch of the piece, the final movement, um, deals with being a parent myself. I I have a three-year-old daughter, um, and another child on the way. Oh, yay. And, um, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and the the third movement is this just kind of joyous romp for my daughter Vera, um, whose name is Vera Rose Schaefer Kahane. Schaefer being my my grandmother's maiden name, mm-hmm. and she has tremendous energy. Tremendous. We think she's a theater director. She started. <laughs> she, she, she's begun to. She's begun to give me notes while I read books to her. This is a new thing where she says, dad, she says, Papa, don't, don't use that voice. Don't use that voice. And I, I feel like she, she reminds me of theater directors. I've, I've worked with in the past because I also do some, some stuff in the theater where, where they're basically saying, you know, get rid of the artifice. I just, I just want you to communicate the text as simply as possible. And that's what my daughter is saying to me. Um, where she says, you know, I need you to leave the house and come back in again, do it again. But this time (laughs) I'm not kidding. Anyway, she's amazing. And, um, early in, in the pandemic, we were sort of marooned in Portland, Oregon, staying in a funny apartment and all of her toys were back in Brooklyn in the apartment that we would ultimately move out of remotely. Um, after having lived there for 10 years, it was very, very strange, but, um, Emma, my partner, fashioned this vehicle out of a Pampers box and scrawled on it Vera's chicken-powered transit machine because Vera was really into eating chicken at that point, and she would scoot around on the floor. And so the last movement of the piece is called Vera's chicken-powered transit machine. Oh my gosh, I love it <laughs> so much. Just a little side note, uh, you and I must be have some kind of connection because our my daughter is seven and her name is June. But if she hadn't been June, she was going to be Vera. I love oh, that name. Oh. It's a beautiful name. So does she also like chicken? She loves chicken. I, she's, okay. I'll, I'll have her listen to this, and then she she is also that personality. Well, she will require that I make her a chicken powered machine as right. well. So I, maybe <laughs> right. we shouldn't listen to this. So as, as I'm listening, uh, Gabriel, to you tell this uh, incredible story behind behind the piece. I, I mean, I have so many questions about it, but. But the first one that comes to mind, I mean, I have, I have in a way, um, my own, you know, musical connection with family. There, there are no other professional musicians in my, uh, in my family, but you know, I, when I was a kid, I practiced piano with my mother who had played piano and my grandfather wrote a little bit of music and he played the accordion and, and piano. So to a certain extent, I understand a little bit of the dynamic of, you know, making music together as a family without going any deeper into that story, which we'll save for another podcast. Uh, I'm just, I'm so curious to know from you, Jeffrey, you know, what, what is it like in general, you know, when you sit down at the piano or when you're conducting an orchestra and you're playing your son's music, what is it like, you know, when you play this particular piece that, that he's just completed and, and what is, I mean, what is the dynamic? Like, I mean, there's, you know, there's playing music by a composer who's dead and in a way you have a conversation (laughs) with a dead composer, but they can't answer back in a direct way. You have, you have experiences of playing music by living composers, you know, with whom you can have a conversation. And then there are living composers who are your son, which, (laughs) which to me seems like a whole other, a whole other level. 
Yes, I think it is a whole other level. And I would add that as far as we know, and uh, please, if, if anybody <clears throat> has any information to the contrary, I, we would both welcome it. But we're not aware of any son or child who has written a concerto for their parent. Mm. The opposite, of course, we know is true. Shostakovich wrote his second piano concerto for his son, and I'm sure there are other examples of that. But And no doubt there, there might be an instance of this, but... Um, but leaving that sort of unique or possibly unique aspect of it aside, um, there, is, there is no way to really put into words the, the thrill of, of doing this, both because I, you know, I love Gabriel as a son, but I also admire him so profoundly as an artist, uh, a multifaceted artist, thinker, musician, um, human being. <clears throat> and um, I've played a couple of solo works, one of which was written for me and one of which was written for another very gifted composer, pianist, Timo Andrus. And I've conducted two, I think, of Gabe's works. I don't really know exactly how to put it into words other than to say it's always immensely moving and, and um, exciting. And it's wonderful to watch these, these works come into being um, and this piece in particular, you know, I, I think we spoke about the idea, Gabe, of, of your writing a concerto for me many years ago, at least in passing, and it, it took a long time for it to come to be, but it was well worth the wait. And it's particularly powerful for me that this piece has this autobiographical slash biographical component, and that it touches so many different places. Um, it goes so many different places, and it really feels like it does synthesize the multiplicity of languages, musical languages that we both love, and um, and in this amazing way tells this. It has this narrative, which begins. You know, I I often when I've been asked uh, in the context of some of the work that I do, um, linking up music with history, I often say that my story starts with the morning when my grandfather was arrested on Kristallnacht in November of 1938 and taken to prison and then to concentration camp at Buchenwald and the whole process that ensued. He was released from the camp and, and mercifully, after only a short time, and, you know, my family, our family was one of the very fortunate ones in that almost all um, of our family escaped from Germany, not all, but, but most of them, and a, and a few died in the camps. Um, so there is that, you know, very dark and tragic thing that's at the, you know, at the root of this story in a way. And yet the piece as a whole is not dark at all. I mean, it has moments which are, are dark and moments which are deeply sad, but it's really a very joyous piece. And, and that's something I really love about it, that it, that it's, it's a celebration of kind of the transcendence, I suppose, you, uh, of of the whole history and what ties it all together. And there's a wonderful arc to that. I'm curious. Um, did you all work together at all in the in the compositional part of it, or Gabriel? Did you work on the whole thing? Did it did it go get to Jeffrey as a complete package, or did you kind of coordinate with each other, work together on some of those elements? Um. There was a moment before I began writing the piece, which I think was sort of indicative of the single biggest influence that my dad had on the composition of the work, which was a pre-concert talk that we jointly gave at Grant Park in Chicago in the summer of 2019. And I'll get back to that. I'm just going to put a pin in that briefly and, and just say broadly um, to sort of answer Michael's earlier question from the other side one of the miraculous benefits of growing up with the soloist for whom you're going to write in your house, hearing them play the piano literally from in utero to the present <laughs> is that I really, I really know what makes my dad special as a musician. And I think, you know, you talk to most composers and we will all say that it's much easier to write for a specific musician than for an imagined musician, which is part of what makes writing for orchestra challenging, unless you have a really deep relationship where you know all the principal wind players and the brass players and 
the section leaders of, of the strings. Because for me, I think much more about the the sort of emotional currency conveyed by someone and the sounds that they make than necessarily the instrument that they play. Or I think specifically about the quality of sound. I was just um, texting with my friend Pekka Kusisto, the great Finnish violinist. And he's someone where the, you know, the sounds that he makes on the violin are uniquely his. And I would write for him in a completely different way than writing for someone like you know Johnny Gandelsman or or um, Colin Jacobson, who who are both also wonderful fiddle players. So writing for my dad, I I've heard him play hundreds of performances, probably of you know Mozart concerti, Beethoven concerti, hours and hours of hearing him practice. And there's a kind of transparency in the piano writing, which we, Dad, maybe you and I can get into this sort of question of is it un, is it underwritten or is it transparent? Um, <laughs> because I think you know one of the things that I think is so special about about my dad's playing is the way that the way that he is a, a singer on the piano and the way that he's able to create the illusion of a singing line on a percussion instrument. Um, but getting back to the question of process um, and Stephanie, your your question. So we did this pre-concert talk in the summer of 2019 where we were appearing on the same program. My dad was playing Gershwin Concerto and uh, we were doing a big orchestral piece of mine with a different conductor, um, a piece called Emergency Shelter Intake Forum that deals with housing issues and homelessness and, and inequality. And the person moderating the conversation asked my father the question, what makes the Gershwin Concerto special? And dad, I wonder if, if you can um, sort of reconstruct what, what your response to that question was. <laughs> well, now I'm really on the spot. Yeah. Um, remind me of what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about the Gershwin Concerto so many times. I yeah. You, you said what makes it special is that it sounds like Gershwin. And what you meant by that, I think, was that in spite of the fact that he was deeply immersed in the music of his contemporaries and of the, the great composers who had preceded him. And given what we know to ha have been great insecurity about being this Tin Pan Alley songwriter who was now moving, you know, he had real imposter syndrome. And yet he wrote this concerto that sounds like Gershwin. And a light bulb went off for me in my head. And I thought, oh, that's that's the piece that I haven't really written. I've always struggled with writing instrumental music because I think of myself first and foremost as a songwriter. And this question of how, how do I bring that language into the concert hall without it sounding neoclassical or neo-romantic or, or somehow um, tired has kind of plagued me over the 10, 15 years that I've been working as a composer. And I, I just thought, okay, this is the moment where I'm going to write a vernacular piano concerto. It's going to be the same language that I use as a songwriter, and I'm going to be unapologetic about that. And then I'm going to figure out how to kind of crack it open with a, you know, some kind of implement of torture <laughs> to break break the materials open and and allow them to get um, sort of you know deconstructed and atomized, and then put them back together. So I think um, we didn't really, I basically, I, I, I sent a, you know, a piano reduction in late 2019 after I'd finished a kind of first draft of the piece. And there were, I think there were maybe a few passages that you pointed to where you felt like the piano writing could be a little bit more dense. And as I've been proofreading it, you also have caught a number of errors, you know, missing accidentals. <laughs> but really, the the fundamental way in which I think you um, changed the piece had to do with with the most important question, which is what kind of piece is this going to be? Is this going to be a, a gnarly, um, you know, me kind of putting on the, the clothes of the the academic long haired composer, or is it going to be something that feels deeply connected to my identity as a songwriter. So in in that sense, I think 
my dad had a profound influence on the piece, even though he had nothing to do with the actual writing of it. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, uh, you kind of started to, to touch on this a little bit. Um, I, I think it's an interesting point for our listeners too, you know, interpreting um, music of different composers. I mean, some, some are hyper specific, you know, there's, there's 12 instructions on every note, play this loud, play this short, play this long accent, no accent, you know, phrase this way. Um, and, and other certainly periods in music composers are less specific. And with certain composers, you know, they're just more or less specific. Um, so I have to wonder in writing for your dad, to what extent, if any, did you have to remind yourself as you were writing, like, oh, wait, someone else might play this. Should mm. I yeah. put such and mm. such in the score? I don't know. I mean, I, I think the piano part is certainly less marked up than it would be if I were writing for someone I didn't know. And I think there's probably way more attention to detail in the orchestral parts. Um, I, I, I do think that I just... I remember the very first time you played a piece of mine, the piece that you commissioned, which was about your your late and beloved dog, Django. That was really early in my career, and yet it was so obvious to me that you just understood my language. You know, we share we share part of uh, of our DNA and collective memory, and that's that's also part of what the piece is about. Is like what what is shared intergenerationally? What how does inheritance work? And um, I think I'll cross the bridge of marking up the piano part a little bit more when, you know, when and if that that becomes an issue. But we have, there are five other orchestras who are are part of this consortium. Um, so we have a ways to go before the, the piece will be available to other pianists. But dad, I don't know if you want to jump in and if you have any thoughts about that. I would just say that, you know, and I, I just happened to, it was a very exciting day today because I've been working off of, um, PDFs on my iPad, and today I finally got the hard copies of both the solo piano part and the full score, which is is very thrilling. Um, and I would just say that uh, it didn't actually occur to me that the piano part was undermarked, but then I just you know I was just sort of flipping some pages, and I thought, yeah, it's true. They're they're relative to the to the markings in the orchestra. There are fewer markings, and um, I always have the feeling with your music when I look at a score that I know that I kind of almost always know what you're getting at, what kind of sound you're looking for, um, what kind of articulation and so on and so forth. So I think there's also, um, you know, there's an interesting broader discussion there about the limitations of writing for, a, a large group of musicians that sort of force us to make more decisions than we would like to make. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that w- if we think about the work of the composer as an economy of generosity and where we can be generous toward the people who are going to play our music and trusting them to make decisions and where that generosity actually manifests in having made decisions that make rehearsal more efficient that's something that I think about a lot. And in the case of a solo part, just thinking from a practical standpoint, if you're t- going to the trouble to write a concerto for someone, I would hope that you trust their musical instincts. <laughs> and if you don't, you have a problem. Right. Um, so, um, so I think, you know, I, I trust my dad's instincts completely. And, um, I think that the you know the marking that we have to do in an orchestral score really comes down to questions of efficiency and unions, and we only are going to have what five hours to work on this piece, um, and and to try to be as directed as possible in being able to really work on the music behind the notes rather than getting bogged down in where does this diminuendo and 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 are you know what is this bowing and so on and so forth. Well, to kind of tie this all together, um, you know, I'm I'm probably going to get the copy of the score in the next few days here, and I'm so excited uh, to see your work 
Gabriel, and especially to hear the performance in a little over a month uh, from the time that we're recording this episode. But I first became familiar with your music um, at a concert in Louisville when I was living in Louisville. You opened for the Punch Brothers. I had never heard you as a singer-songwriter before, and I was, both my wife and I, were absolutely blown away and fascinated um, by your musicianship, by your creativity, by your innovation. And I remember I came up and spoke to you after the concert and and talked to you a little bit, and and I became a Gabriel Kahane fan in a, in a major way that day. And then oh. to get the chance to conduct... Um, some of your orchestrations and arrangements with both Ifo Donovan, who we had as a guest for Symphony in the Flint Hills, and then, as you mentioned earlier, Andrew Bird. Uh, not only, I don't think I'm just speaking for myself, the entire Kansas City Symphony really enjoyed those experiences because the way you write for orchestra um, as an arranger and orchestrator is, in my opinion, very unique. It's It's not just taking what the person who originally created that work did and just orchestrating it or just saying, okay, I'm going to give this line to the trumpet and give the strings this to do. You really add layers and make the music so much more interesting, not only to listen to, but to play. And I remember the first time I looked at one of those IFA scores and I thought, wow, this is quite elaborate and quite complex. And I wondered, how is it all going to work? How is it? And I really studied it and really, you know, put a lot of thought into it. And then even that first rehearsal, the, the one rehearsal we did, I was blown away by just how amazing it was. Mm-hmm. And so actually, you know, there's this ties into writing a concerto because you can, as a composer, either write very intricate, involved parts for the orchestra the way that maybe Dvorak would or, uh, you know, Brahms writing full 2D big sections or someone like Chopin or, or perhaps Liszt that wasn't as experienced of an orchestrator or someone that could write for orchestra. So I'm actually interested to see how the orchestra parts are going to be for this concerto and how that's going to tie in with what Jeffrey's doing. Well, thank you for those really kind words. Um, for me, orchestrating actually ties back to my mother and psychology and empathy. (laughs) And one of the things I I don't remember exactly, I think it might've been the violist and podcast host radio personality, Nadia Sirota, um, who's uh, the violist in a group called Why Music, a new music ensemble in New York. And I want to say that Why Music, which is a six person ensemble, and I collectively were giving a master class at the University of Michigan really early in my career. And I remember her saying something about the way in which a composer communicates respect for the people who are going to play their music based on the way in which it looks on the page. Whether that's just that it's laid out elegantly, so there are no collisions you know, of objects on one staff colliding with another one, or whether it's writing what you want to hear in as simple a way as possible and not trying to be overly fussy. And I think that was probably nine, nine or 10, maybe even 11 years ago. And from that moment, I began to think really deeply every time I would write for orchestra, which is that rare and kind of odd situation in which you are writing generally for people you don't know. And the way that that relationship is going to begin is not going to be face-to-face, but when they check out the part from the, the library. And what they see on the page is either going to start you off on their good side or <laughs> with a deficit. <laughs> and um, I think because I come from this world of being a songwriter and being kind of an interloper in this world being really, really um, careful and meticulous uh, both about how my parts are laid out on the page, but also thinking about a balance between wanting to keep the players um, sitting forward on their chair and engaged, but also not wanting things to be so fiendishly difficult that they're, you know, shedding for five hours for a passage that's three seconds long that gets (laughs) buried in the texture. Um, so I, I appreciate your you know sensitivity to that, and it's it's I I think of myself as um, 
there are a lot of composer colleagues who who I think you know run circles around me as orchestrators. Um, but I also feel like I know how to play to my strengths. And in song like material, um, there's this additional balance, which is keeping the player engaged on the one hand, but also always respecting the song and making sure that anything that you're doing is not detracting from the text. Um, mm. nor is it, um, you know, conveying something emotionally that, that is sort of dissonant with, with what's, um, with what's going on with the song. Now, when writing instrumental music are somewhat less complicated because the way in which an orchestra can support, let's say the melody, um, you're not dealing with that added component of how a text, how we hear text, right? Because when we're hearing a lyric, um, part of our brain is occupied with that. And when you start throwing counterpoint um, against a lyric, that can become really tricky for the brain to parse and to know where to send their attention. Um, and, and so I think that this piece is tuneful in a lot of the same ways that um, I hope my songs are tuneful. <laughs> and, and in fact, the, the coda of the first movement is a paraphrase of the title track of an album of mine called Where Are the Arms, which actually came out 10 years ago. Um, and, and I say paraphrase, b- both in the, the sort of musical use of that, that term, but also paraphrase in, in that it, um, it goes to a lot of different places harmonically that, that it doesn't go in the, in the original song. Um, so I think that's Jason to, to sum up a response to your question about the orchestration. I I'm, I'm curious and I, and I, I will also confess that I remain pretty deeply insecure about putting instrumental music into the world. It's just not, it's not my comfort zone. My comfort zone is the human voice and I love writing for instruments around the human voice. And I feel totally comfortable writing for a large orchestra under a voice. Um, and I feel like my imagination really gets set free by that. And in the absence of the voice, I, I feel like an imposter. So this is a piece that's really special for me because I've tried to run headlong into that insecurity. Dad, you're laughing. <laughs> you're not an imposter. <laughs> mm. No, you're not. <laughs> Definitely not. I second that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to get back just a, a question because um, you you mentioned the consortium and the the other orchestras that have um, partnered on this commission, and I think that's that's an interesting thing that you know our audience may not um, have considered. So, can you talk a little bit about how that the commission process for this piece specifically worked and? the orchestras that are partnering, because I know that we are uh, presenting the world premiere um, in Hellsberg Hall in September, um, but there are other orchestras that that are going to be performing this soon as well. Dad, do you want to answer that? Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we are so incredibly fortunate to have um, a remarkably rich and diverse consortium of orchestras who've... who've uh, signed on to present the piece. We're doing it in March with the Oregon Symphony Orchestra in Portland. In the summer um, with uh, the Aspen Chamber Symphony. I assume it's the Chamber Symphony. Actually, there are multiple orchestras in Aspen, but I'm going to guess that it will be the Aspen Chamber Symphony. Um, I don't know who's conducting that yet. And then, interestingly, in the following season, there are performances with my former orchestra, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Both of those, um, I'm going to be actually conducting the piece from the piano, which is going to be a very interesting challenge um, and may require a few adjustments to certain aspects of the piece. Um, we'll see. We'll have to see how that goes. But the, And then finally, uh, the Knights in New York. And I would mention that in terms of the genesis of the piece, it was Eric Jacobson, who's the founder and co-artistic director of the Knights. Uh-huh. Um, he had been hounding me for years. He said, when are you going to write the Pops Concerto? When are you going to write the Pops Concerto? <laughs> and he just kept asking every every couple of months until finally I relented. And the other thing that I would add on a bittersweet note is that the piece was also underwritten in large part by 
very dear friends of mine um, and patrons of the arts, Linda and Stuart Nelson, um, who have supported projects of mine over the last decade. Stuart died at 89 earlier this year. Mm. Um, and so he he will not get to, to hear this piece. Um, but um, they they are just extraordinary um, supporters of the arts and they do their work really quietly. And um, so I'm really grateful to them. And I, I will be thinking about Stuart's memory in Kansas City. As will I. Is the the working title for for this piece was the Pops Concerto? Then is that is that what you're saying? That was the, the, the working there's title. There's a whole saga. There's there's a saga. Yeah, <laughs> the saga about the title. So when we were pitching the piece, I think I was calling it the Schaefer's of Magdeburg. Magdeburg being the the town mm-hmm. in which my grandmother lived, and that didn't feel quite right. It 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 felt too limiting because there's this sort of intergenerational thing going on. And then <laughs> the, my favorite rejected title was <laughs> My Father Killed Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> Whoa. Which wow. is both a, it's a play on, on the, the John Adams piece, My Father Knew Charles Ives. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and is also not entirely inaccurate because if you, read, <laughs> if you read the Bernstein biographies, in all of them, it talks about how the day he died he was watching a broadcast of Live from Lincoln Center. It was a recital with Yo-Yo Ma and Jeffrey Kahane, and two hours later, he was dead. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, whoa. As you can, oh, as you can imagine, I, I vetoed that title. Most. I, yeah. <laughs> but interestingly, the second movement, I, I did get the John Adams reference in there. Um, the second movement is called My Grandmother Knew Alban Berg. Mm-hmm. Alban Berg being one of the, the great uh, composers of the second Viennese school. And this is a fib in the same way that John Adams's dad did not know Charles Ives. Um, my grandmother did know Arnold Schoenberg, and she babysat for his children. Wow. And my dad's childhood piano teacher knew Alban Berg. So, so it's sort of like a composite allusion to that shared history and, <laughs> and the, the old country. Nice. I love all of that. All right, well... On this podcast, we like to play games. So I was hoping that you guys would be up for just a really short, quick game um, where it would, it's kind of in the style of the newlywed game where we'll have teams and Jason and Mike will be the bros. And then we'll have our father and (laughs) the father and son team of Jeffrey and Gabriel. And basically, it's just how well do you know each other? Mm. Um, (laughs) Yes. so I've got some questions here. It's very low, low pressure. The winner doesn't get anything. Let's just say that. Except we for bra- how about bragging rights? Yes. We don't get Peter Sagal's voice on our home answering machine. You can have you can have Mike Gordon play a some kind of ditty on your home answering machine on his piccolo. Okay. How about that? A ditty sounds good. Something from my ditty. collection of ditties. Can it uh-huh. can it yeah. be in G sharp minor? Of course. <laughs> okay. All of my favorite ditties are in G sharp minor. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then, if Mike wins, you have to write him something in G sharp minor that he can then play. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy, is right. All right. So we're gonna kind of go with the honor system here, just because you know we're all on Zoom. So basically, I'm gonna ask a question. So I will ask Mike a question about Jason, and then we'll get we'll get the answers. And then if they match, you get a point. And if they don't match, then, you know, you get a big old, you know, loser sound or something. No. <laughs> um, so we'll start with Mike and Jason just to just to get in there. So the bros, the bros. Wow. All right. So I will say so this question is for Mike about Jason. Who would Jason say is his um, conductor role model? Like if he was to name one conductor that would be his role model. Who would that be? Besides Jeffrey Kahane. <laughs> well, it could have been Jeffrey Kahane. I don't know why you're ruining the game already. I guess <laughs> about this. I feel like I feel like this is something obvious that I should know and I'm thinking and Well, while you're thinking about it, my question for Jason Okay. My question for Jason is who is Mike's flute hero? So it, mm. it can be soloist, it can be orchestral. Who is who is Mike's favorite flutist all right so mike we're gonna go back to you his jason's conducting role model who would it be oof uh 
I really feel like I should know this. I'm going to say Wow, something. Tim, you're going to have to edit out about three minutes of Mike stalling here. This is absolutely <laughs> horrible. Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm. This is not going to be it, but I'm just going to say a conductor. Um, I'm going to say Ricardo Muti. Ooh. Oh, I, oh, Jason, that does not I imply... I do like a, Ricardo Muti, but my favorite all-time conductor, I wrote it down, Carlos Kleiber. Ah! Carlos Kleiber. That's what I was going to say for my dad. Really? Yeah. That's See? absolutely absolutely correct. So Whoa. So maybe well, Jeffrey f- and I should be a team. Well, yeah. I we, think, we know each other well. But, I think but, that but do Gabriel I get a point? just got a point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, for the game where the points don't matter. Yeah. All right. Jason, who is Mike's flute role model? Uh could be James Galway. I'm gonna go with Jean Pierre Rompal. Mike, what's the answer? Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> I don't think there is. We got a point. I don't think there Did is we get an a point? answer to that, honestly. But I'll give okay. you. Okay. You should. You should get a point for that. I just have to interject <laughs> that this is the dorkiest podcast of all time, and I'm here for it, and I love it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Okay, so now we'll go to our father-son team. So Mike, Mike did get a. No, Jason got a point. Jason, Mike and Jason. Sorry, it's, Jason it's a team got a point. Here. All right. So for Gabriel and Jeffrey, we will say this question is for Jeffrey. Who is Gabriel's biggest, influ- most influential composer? So who? And it can be composer. It can be songwriter. It can be artist, like muse, maybe even. And then. Gabriel, who is Jeffrey's either favorite composer to play on the piano? Let's go with that one. Favorite composer to play on the piano. We won't we won't go with conducting since we already got that one. So Jeffrey, who is the most influential composer you think you think Gabriel would say? I would probably say Schubert. Oh, he's right. Yeah, yeah I, I would say I, mean, I, I there were, you know, a couple others that came to mind, which would be very, you know, could easily um, be on, on that level. But certainly that was the name that came to my mind right away. Yeah, I mean, I think the more tricky and evasive answer that I would give is that I sort of categorically reject the question. Right. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't yes. really think in those terms. And I yeah. I was actually going to say that in in response, my answer for my dad is that I think he would refuse to answer the question. (laughs) That is exactly correct. (laughs) Two points, two points for the father son team. I like it. I love it. All right. I've never, I just want to say just to, you know, to reinforce that, that I've been asked that question thousands of times over the, the last many decades. And that is exactly the answer that I've, given in as polite a way as possible. I said, I can't, I can't answer yeah. that question. I and, and I would I just say that. with respect to my, my dad's answer, the slightly more accurate answer would have been for him to say, Gabriel rejects that category of question, but, <laughs> but Schubert, if, he if, I, it, if I were going to answer it, Schubert is a good, that's a good answer. I love that. All right. So we, we got three questions. So that was number one. This one's taking a, a different turn. So everybody gets the same question and it is, what is, your least favorite food least favorite food so if something like is going to just gross you out that you will refuse to eat what is that going to be and let's see this time let's start with uh, jeffrey and gabriel so gabriel what would your dad say he just can't eat he categorically refuses to answer that question (laughs) well i know that uh my dad is not a fan of turkey. Oh, turkey. Like roasted Thanksgiving Ooh. turkey? Yeah, I'm not a fan of turkey. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't refuse yeah. to eat it. Yeah. I'm trying I mean, to think I if, I, eat it at Thanksgiving. if I can think of, I mean, my, my dad is a pretty voraciously um, open-minded eater. I can't think of anything. I mean, I've definitely heard you grouse about turkey. Yeah. <laughs> Well, my wife eats turkey burgers, and I really, really can't stand that. So I think I think Gabe get, deserves at least half a point for that. Give him a half point. Jeffrey, do you have a different answer, or is that is that the go-to? Yeah, I mean, like you know, insects. Uh huh. <laughs> yes. Good choice. Um, the thing, the things that they spam. Well, I don't know about spam. The things that that are eaten in uh, you know in some countries that that we don't eat. You know. Mm-hmm. monkey brains and like stuff like that. I mean, people really do eat that. Let's not be cultural imperialists now. <laughs> I, I didn't say, 
<laughs> there was anything wrong with eating them. I just said, we don't usually eat them. So, All right. So now maybe dad has an advantage here because, you know, you, 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 you have a son who's growing up. He's, he's got to not like to eat some things. What would, what would Gabriel say is something he just doesn't want to eat? Um, a number of kinds of fruit. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm, I, I think like certainly um, just plain orange, like, uh, right? That's, that's the... That's the the one that still traumatizes me. Okay, so oranges. You're, I guess well I guess done. you're actually I guess you're actually my father after all. Yeah, <laughs> you're just orange averse then. I'm kind of citrus averse. Citrus, yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, now Mike and Jason, you clearly you know each other very well, but do you know this about each other, Jason? What would Mike say is his least favorite food? I'm gonna go with vegetables. He's a meat eater. <laughs> wow, you're so mean. Is that true? That, you are, you uh, love I love vegetables. Oh, okay. Right. I like vegetables very much. I'm I'm going to struggle naming one for Jason and of course Jason and I I think have the same problem in the context of this conversation which is that we're both pretty omnivorous and pretty adventurous and pretty into food. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine what you wouldn't want to eat or even I would go so far as to say enjoy. I'm going to go I'm going to go with you know, the, like the the toaster pizza rolls that you get in the frozen section. What am I thinking of? Hot Pockets. H- Hot Pockets. Hot thank Pockets. You. <gasps> Made famous by Dr. Evil. There you go. I'm going to say you would not eat a Hot Pocket, particularly on account of your, I believe you have some Italian heritage in your line, among other things. I think you would well, be averse to the Hot Pocket. I haven't had a Hot Pocket in probably like 12 to 15 years, but I did like them when I was a college kid, so... You guys uh, are terrible. Answer. Wow. Nope. Mine is coconut. I don't like to eat coconut. Mm. Oh, yeah. interesting. interesting. Hmm. I like coconut flavor. I just don't like the texture. We're winning. Interesting. You are, yeah, definitely, you are definitely winning. winning. Um, okay. And this third question is actually, it's it's uh, a question for all of you as well. But we already know the answer for Jason and Mike because we talk about it all the time. So this is just a Jeffrey and Gabriel question. And this is, what is your favorite beverage? Because this podcast is called <laughs> Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. So we do talk about libations occasionally on this podcast, meaning every single podcast. Oh, I was like about to say occasionally. <laughs> um, so yeah, J- Jason is definitely a bourbon drinker. And I don't know, Mike, what would Mike say? Jason, yes. what would Mike say is his favorite? Well, Mike likes bourbon too, quite a bit. We yeah. shared many of bourbons, yeah. Yeah. But he also likes many other things. So, uh, Jeffrey, does Gabriel have a favorite beverage? It doesn't have to be alcoholic, but you know, if 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 that is an option, it's a nice tie into the podcast. <laughs> and if it's not, you know, water is all always a suitable answer. And then vice versa. Um gosh. I would be inclined to say a really good red wine. Um uh, or Oregon local beer. Ooh. Oh wait, no, no, no. He knows. Mm. Oh, they were giving. He was I giving the it. signals. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of Is that course. Right? I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, coffee. Yeah, right. I'm. I'm pretty nerdy about coffee, and in fact, I one of the the great boons of moving to Portland was that I was introduced by a mutual friend to a guy named Justin Kagan, who's a kind of classic New York character, now expat living in Portland, um, if we can say expat, referring to New Yorkers who've moved to Portland. Um, (laughs) His father was a cellist in the Met Orchestra, and Justin himself is a cellist. And he, while on tour with the Met Orchestra, in Italy, fell in love with espresso, became a coffee nerd, started his own micro roastery, which is called Bad Beards Coffee. He ships <laughs> everywhere in the US. Oh, I love it. And his coffee is absolutely sublime. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm a real coffee nerd with the, you know, the scale and the, the um, thermometer and being pretty obsessive about my burr grinder and and so on and so forth to the point where <laughs> for my 40th birthday one of my dear friends the flutist Alex Sop um made me she's also an incredible painter and she painted a Chemex carafe 
with a human eye where the coffee should have been. Oh my. <laughs> um, so my dad got that. Um, and I, I would say that my dad's favorite beverage is Pomplumus LaCroix. <gasps> mm, <laughs> no. Good choice. Nope. Shaking nope. his head. No. No. Sparkling water. Plain spark- good sparkling plain, water. Plain sparkling water. Good well, sparkling water. I was in the right category of carbonation. You were. You were. Well, you, you guys definitely, definitely, definitely won. Sorry, J- Jason and Mike, you're, you're buddies, but you can't beat the father-son duo there. That's weird in fact. I mean, it would have been really embarrassing if we'd lost. That's true. We, we occasionally play games with, oh, yes, Tim says that it's five to, five to one. So, well done. Five to one. Okay, it wasn't <laughs> as bad as I thought. I thought it was seven to one. It was only five to one. Good. We occasionally play these games. Like, we'll play them with all of our musicians um, in the orchestra at the end. And, you know, they're always related to the instrument that the, the musician plays. And so, it, I don't think anyone has ever lost, which is good, because that would also be embarrassing, I think, too. So, congratulations. So before we let you both go, uh, there is one other question we are legally required uh, to ask all of our guests. And it, of course, has, again, to do very much with the title of our podcast, Beethoven Walks Into Bar. So, Jeffrey and Gabriel, before uh, you leave us uh, on this fine, fine day, if you happen to find yourselves in a bar with Mr. Beethoven, what would you want to ask him? Why did he measure, why did he count his coffee beans rather than just getting a scale? <laughs> Somebody else asked that question. Do you guys remember? Who yeah, asked I that? I don't remember who it was, but yeah, they did. One, I'll have to look it up because one of our other guests was very, uh, yes, dismayed by his, uh, his bean counting. My dad's going to have a much more profound question. <laughs> it's, it's not really profound, but you know, there's a great controversy about the opening of the fourth piano concerto, the first chord, which pianists struggle with, you know, it's just a chord and, and they struggle and struggle and struggle to voice it perfectly and get just exactly the right balance between the eight notes. And, and yet um, Beethoven's student, Carl Czerny, maintains that Beethoven actually rolled the chord. Hmm. Which I've only heard one pianist in my life had the courage to do. That was Malcolm Frager many, many years ago with the Rochester Philharmonic, and um, and I would want to ask him, "Did you roll the chord? <laughs> did you do you do you, <laughs> do you like that chord rolled or played altogether?" <laughs> that's the that's what came to my mind. There are mil- a hundred things, of course, I would want to ask him about. You know, metronome markings and articulate. Oh, or that, another good one would be. What, what does the dash as opposed to the dot mean in your mm. in your articulations? Mm. That's a really vexing question. I've often wondered the same thing myself. Yes. Well, and you know when Jonathan Del Mar did the the new Bernrider edition of all the symphonies, he made the incredibly controversial decision of changing every single dot to a dash. So he eliminated any distinction mm-hmm. on the grounds that we can't tell what Beethoven meant because he's inconsistent. Um, and, uh, so he, you know, this incredibly scholarly edition, which is supposed to be the, the great new urtext, ironically is very deceptive in that way because, well, um, clearly the dots were put down on days when he had miscounted the beans in his coffee <laughs> and had, yes. had two, he, he was under caffeinated and therefore really grumpy. And so he was just like stabbing at the manuscript paper. This is, I mean, clearly. Circle. there you clearly. go. I love it. <laughs> I would say if someone can come to a definitive answer about that or somehow go back in time and speak to Beethoven, he would save many people, but especially wind players, a lot of arguments during rehearsals about, you know, how long to play certain notes. Um, Well, we want to thank you both so much for being here. There is one last little order of business that we always try to do, uh, which is to leave our listeners uh, with some recommended listening to check out. So uh, do either of you or hopefully both of you uh, have something wonderful that, uh, that you would suggest our listeners check out either uh, now or when they get a moment? Well, since he can't do this himself, <laughs> oh, I was hoping you I would, would do this. I definitely recommend to anyone who's going to come and hear Gabriel's piano, Gabriel's piano concerto to listen to um, one of his, his albums. Uh, his, um, he has several wonderful albums, the Ambassador Book of Travelers, mm-hmm. um, 
Gabe, which is the album that, that has Where Are the Arms? Is it called Where Are the Arms? It's called Where Are the Arms. Where are the, right. I would, I, that, I would start with Book of Travelers, but that's, a nice, that's nice of you. I'm going to give... I'm going to give a couple of recommendations because I, I have this position with the Oregon symphony where I serve as creative chair. And so I've been listening to a ton of music lately. Um, and there are a few things that I want to recommend, uh, in no particular order. One is the, the harpsichordist Pierre Antai, H-A-N-T-A-I playing the Goldberg variations. Um, another is a recent album, by the composer Gabriella Smith and the cellist Gabriel Cabezas. The album is called Lost Coast. Um, there's a young songwriter named Tanner Porter. She's another polymath who has a degree in composition from Yale and is also a songwriter. Um, and in fact, she has I, she might have just had her work done in Kansas City as well in IFA's new big song cycle. Has that already happened? Mm, or is not that, yet. Maybe it's happening sometime soon, but Tanner actually did the orchestrations for that. She has an album called The Summer Sinks, uh, which is really tremendous. Another Gabriella Smith piece that I'm super fond of is her string quartet, Carrot Revolution, which is recorded by the Isuri Quartet. And, oh yeah, and then lastly, the singer Aruj Aftab has an album called Vulture Prince, which I think is just exquisite. Her name is A R O O J A F T A B, and the album is called Vulture Prince. Got it. Um, and she's pretty fierce. So those are my my recommendations for for the day. Awesome. Our listeners can find links to all of these um, recommendations in our show notes, and uh, we'll be able to check all of that out. Well, Gabriel and Jeffrey, thank you both so much for joining us. We cannot wait for our opening Classical Weekend, uh, where we will give the world premiere of Heirloom with Jeffrey on piano. And uh, if you don't have your tickets yet, you what are you waiting for, ladies and gentlemen? Michael Stern leads this program with Jeffrey Kahane as the soloist in Heirloom, uh, this piece that we've been discussing today by Gabriel Kahane. Well, next week, we're going to chat with another special guest from our own KCS family, Associate Principal Oboe Allison Chung. She is not only one of our incredible musicians, she is a prolific cook, baker, eater, and food blogger. We'll ask her all about her journey in music and how her hungry and adventurous online alter ego, Lil Chung, came to be. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>